and singing the great songs of their God and King. And um, I, it was a troubling verse to me, not, not like... Not, not like causing trouble in my faith, but I just didn't understand it. I wanted to understand it. Like, I don't know why in heaven we're singing about Abraham and Moses. We don't do that now. Uh, I mean, we don't, unless you're in children's church, you're not singing a song about Father Abraham having many sons and many sons having Father Abraham. Uh, we just don't do it. We sing about Jesus. We sing about Christ. We sing about him resurrected. We sing about, and so um, I, I just kind of, I don't know how your brain works. I'm haunted I'm a haunted man, which means if I see something, I need to know how it works, and I'll be bothered uh, until I can get to the bottom of it. Um, and so that's turned out uh, to be a gift in my life. I didn't know it was a gift early on, um, but I, I was haunted by that text for a long time. Uh, flipping through the Gospel of Mark, I came across a story that started bringing it together for me. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is at Simon the leper's house, and, and a woman comes in and breaks open a vial. Um, and anoints Jesus' head and anoints his feet. And the disciples, as well as the Pharisees, begin to complain about the woman. Um, they, they say, um, man, man that, that ointment could have been sold and we could have fed the poor. We could have, and Jesus strongly rebukes them and, and says, listen, this woman has done something beautiful for me. In fact, and, and here's where it started coming together. Wherever the gospel is taught until the end of the age, what this woman has done for me will be told. He, he just said, from this moment on, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman's story is going to be preached, and you get to be the morons in the story. <laughs> G- going forward. And, and so in that moment, reading through the gospel of Mark, I read that this woman's story... We don't, they don't even give the woman a name. She's nameless. All right? That this woman's going so catch this. You and I, 2009, Philly, sitting in a room telling the story of Jesus and mentioning a woman who out of nowhere busted into Simon the leper's house and anointed Jesus' head. So he's not alive. It's still happening. We're still telling her story. And so here's what happened to me. Now, this is conjecture. I always want to separate the two. And this isn't um, solid exegesis right here. This is conjecture. Okay? What if what's happening in heaven is that Moses gets up in front of the throng. He gets up in front of the millions. And he lifts up his glass. And he says, and he did this, and he did this. And he did this, and he did this, and he did this. And I, and I can't speak, I stutter, but he did this. And I've got no power, but he parted the Red Sea, he did this. And, and man, I, the people I led were not the smartest fools in the world. I went up on the mountain like a week later, came down there worse than a calf. Not a lion, not something ferocious, not something legit, a cow, baby cow. I mean, I had some stupid people, so stupid, God killed them off. Said, nuh-uh, killing them off, I'll take your kids in. And he did this, and he did this, and then, this is just in my head, the crowd erupts, and we clink our glasses, and we drink the new wine, and, and then Moses sits down, and, and I don't know who's next, I, but somebody gets up next, because see, If this woman's story continues to be told on the side of things where there are time constraints, 
What might happen when there are no time constraints? Could it be that one by one by one, for the centuries, men get up and they lift their glass and say, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and he did this, and then we clink our glasses, and the new wine spills on the floor, but it just evaporates because it's heaven, because ain't nobody going to clean it up. And we drink the new wine, and we celebrate. Even the Baptists are drinking the new wine, all right? It, it's heaven. No, there ain't no drunkenness, so we just get to drink it. And, and, and there is this epic. Who knows? Maybe it just goes for the first 3,000 years. But every time somebody gets up and says, he does this, all of our joy increases a little. I mean, if we get ever-increasing joy, it just keeps increasing. It keeps increasing. And then, and then maybe, maybe it eventually is my turn to say he did this, 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 and clink glasses. See, that's, that's where my mind's eye, that day is where my mind's eye is. Because see, everything's rewritten at that point. Who are the heroes then? Who's cool then? Who's legit then? What, what does history even look like then? See, real history will take the place of fake history at that moment. See, the heroes won't be governments. They won't be laws. They won't be systems. The heroes will be the faithful, the missionary, those who laid down their life, those who took the step of obedience no matter how difficult it was. Those, see, history will be rewritten. It will be right then. So that's where my mind's eye is. That's where my mind's eye is. Now, we're just going to get to work here. We're just going to get to work here. Um, I've got tons. I, I don't know how long I'll go. Could be forever. <laughs> but I'm, I'm just going to get going because this is a passion of mine, um, very much a passion of mine, and I've seen both the empirical data, all right, as well as personal data that where men are not neat Christian boys, but where men become godly men, the church flourishes and the culture is engaged. And where they don't, things begin to disintegrate. The Bible's going to tell us. If you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 3. Uh, I'll catch you up in Genesis 1 and 2. God creates the man. <clears throat> he, he creates, picks up dirt, forms it into the man, breathes life into the man. All right? Creates all that is, takes the man... And, and most of the world is wild, it's untamed, it's unkept, it's just growing, he just created it, and then it's spinning. He puts man into the garden that is orderly, all right? The, the garden is orderly, it's kept, it's cultivated, it's right. He puts man into the garden and says, make the rest of the planet look like this, all right? Man starts to look through all that God created, and, and names them all, all right? And the Bible's very clear that a suitable helper could not be found for him, all right? So, puts him down, pulls out a rib, forms the woman. Guy wakes up, sees a naked woman, first song in the Bible, all right? Man doesn't sing till the naked woman shows up, all right? Now all of a sudden we're worshiping, hands up. Whoa, man, all right? Lo, I mean, mine is what he literally calls her. In, in the Hebrew, so he's like, giraffe, dung, mine. That's mine. That's what we're calling that, 
mine. So God says, go, cultivate, make the rest of the world look like this, the Garden of Eden. Um, be fruitful and multiply. It's going to take a lot of you, so have a lot of babies. You're not going to pull this one off by yourself. All right. So that, according to the creative design, you and I were designed by God to be cultivators. Are, are you tracking with that? that? That you were designed. Now, look at me. This is not, this is, you were, I don't care if you're a believer or not, you're a cultivator. If you're a man, you are a cultivator. Now, we'll get into the question of faith in a little bit because we've got to get into the question of faith to see what you're cultivating. But you were created by God to cultivate, to build, to make. Like, like watch man. Watch him. I mean, you can... <laughs> men have to build something. All right? They, they have to build something. They have to make something. They have to, so whether that's business, whether that's just watch men operate and and we're going to cultivate we're going to make we're going to that's what god created us to do it's what he designed us to do he designed us to walk with the woman cultivate her he designed us to walk with our children cultivate them grow them into godliness like if you watch men even if they don't have the discipline to pull it out they have the desire to build to make and to move all right um the rule on technology for men is always bigger and faster that's what we want we want it to move faster. We want it to be quicker. We want it to be big. For business, we want to build it. We want to make it. We want to, I mean, Watchmen, like the thing I, I giggle about where I'm from is um, every January, New, New Year's resolutions come around and a dude's like, I'm going to get in shape. But he doesn't just decide he's going to get in shape. Like he goes and he buys like new sneakers and like workout gear and like a $400 hot heart monitor watch. And a, now he ain't, I mean, he bought four shirts. He only wore three of them before he stopped going to the gym, all right? But in his heart is, I want to cultivate. I, I want to cultivate, all right? Now, that breaks down when sin enters into the world. And, and I want to show you, like my dad, uh, very abusive, absentee. Um, I mean, by God's grace, he's a, just a strong believer, actually goes to the village now. Um, God, God's done a tremendous work in it. But I want to try to explain to you why your daddy bailed, why my daddy bailed, why they struggled like they struggled. Um, let, let me show you what happens at the fall. All right? Sin enters into the world, fractures everything. I mean, fractures everything. Everything that was good and right and brought about worship is broken and now has a bent to it that'll lead us into destruction. So I mentioned it last night, where there was food and no gluttony, now there is gluttony. Where there is wine, but out, without alcoholism, without drunkenness, now there is alcoholism and drunkenness. Where there is sex, all right, without sinful lust, now there's sinful lust. Every, literally everything. Rest becomes laziness. Everything gets fractured, and God designed the man to cultivate, to work, and the more he works, and the more he cultivates, the more he understands and sees God, and then sin enters in the world and fractures everything. And then look at what happens here. Um, it really is intriguing. Starting in verse 17 of Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Listen to this. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, here's what happens. God makes the man a cultivator, all right? He is to build, he is to work, he is to, all right? He does it all without what the scriptures call toil, which means there is work, but the work doesn't create toil or it's not wearisome, it's not burdensome to the man to work before the fall. The fall occurs, sin enters into the world, and look how it affects the man. Everything that God has asked us to cultivate now wars against us. Are you tracking with that? So, yes, work, but you got to know it's going to be filled with toil and your best laid plans will sometimes blow up in your face. So while you're working on the bathroom, getting it right, your other bathroom floods. Yeah. Where you get the front of your house looking perfect, the inside caved in on itself. Where you work and work and work and work and work And the results don't get seen or noticed. Okay, but it goes further than that. It also means that trying to cultivate our wives and cultivate our children and cultivate that there will be inherent difficulty in it all because of sin. So let me me tell you why my old man. See, here's the thing about daddy issues. At some point, can, and I'll be, I'll be honest here. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'll be honest. Um, you, healing finally came for me with my old man, who was abusive literally in every way you could be abusive. And I won't get into all the details of that. He was a violent, evil man. All right? So that, that creates some issues in a guy. All right? It, it really does. And I despised him forever. And then even when I thought, and I don't know how you were, even when I thought I forgave him, all right? It would just take him saying something or doing something, and I'd learn I hadn't forgave him at all. No pity. No pity for him. No, no grace for him. No, and you, here's, you, I, I, I hope I don't get in trouble. Here's where the, you know where the Lord finally just blew up my heart, and I wept and forgave my old man and then got to see Christ restore him? I, a friend of mine, gave me the Black Album by Jay-Z. And, and on that, I forget what the song's called, but here's what he says. Yeah, um, he, he, I think it's called Moment of Clarity, the song is. And, and he says, so Pops, I forgive you for all the, that I've been through. It wasn't all your fault, homie. You got caught into the same game I fought. I won't parade your loss. And I'm just, I'm listening to that record, and it got to that part. And I went, oh, my God, I'm parading my dad's loss. Like, I'm fighting, and by the grace of Christ alone, winning against generational sin. 
and I'm hating and parading his loss as dark, what is dark in the world has crushed him, and I've been ungracious and wicked to him, despite the fact that my only victory against what is generational in my bloodline has been because of the grace of Christ. It was in the Black Album that Christ let me, <laughs> let me heal a really deep wound in my life, in my heart. Okay. So in this, in, in this, my dad, he just did, I'll say your dad, he just did the best he could with what he knew, man. And the only reason you're in this room and even got a shot to live any different is because God's lavished his grace upon you. What kind of men are we if we don't extend the grace given to us, to those who've harmed us, abandoned us, betrayed us? Sure. Sure. All right. Everything, then, we try to cultivate is going to blow up in our face. Or at least going to be difficult. Now, why would God do that? Because listen, if I'm like if I'm in control, and I think we, I don't even think you have to know me to be excited that I'm not. If I'm in control, I wire this thing differently. Like if you love God, I just make everything easy for you. Because then the world will look and go, oh, you love God, look how easy everything is. Because I, I think that would make people want to follow him. I mean, good Lord, I know it does because there's a lot of people preaching that right now. And grow in big churches. I never, I never quite understand it because life doesn't work that way. So I don't know why somebody doesn't wake up a year in and go, wait a minute. It's only one of us getting rich here. And it is not me. I have sowed my seed more time than I could count. Brother got some diamond cufflinks. I'm still in the ghetto. Anyway, that's a whole nother sermon. In, in this, in this, what happens as, as we get married and difficulties arise, as we raise children and difficulties arrive, as we build our businesses and difficulties arrive, what's happening is God's teaching us the gospel. That's why he loves you enough to make it full of toil. Because every time it's difficult you'll be reminded of your need for Him, your need for His grace, your need for His power, and your need to submit your life to Him. You don't have to study the Scriptures long to find out that when everything goes easy, faith goes docile and then disappears. So God loves you too much to give you complete ease. In fact, do you know the book of Romans says, and this is scary, like if you hear cats talk about wrath, they always talk about like tornadoes and disease. And it, Romans 1 says God's wrath is him just being indifferent. That's a lot scarier to me. That's a lot scarier to me in a tornado. I build a shelter. All right? Disease, I'll go to the doctor. All right? But for those who fail to acknowledge him, the Bible says he turns them over to exactly what they want, to do what they ought not do. That is a terrifying idea. So anytime something's difficult for me, I immediately think Hebrews 12, God loves me. 
He loved me. We put my little two-year-old boy, he's three now, he's fine. We put my little two-year-old boy in the back of an ambulance and drove to the hospital. Couldn't breathe, had a seizure, thought we were going to lose him. God loves me. He loved because today he's not going to let me do life without him. He's not. He loves me too much to let me. All right. Marriage was difficult the first two years. Let me. I am the son of an abusive alcoholic. My wife is the daughter of um, Bible Belt Christianity, which is moral righteousness without the relationship with Jesus. So if you have a problem, you just shut up about that. Just bring your Bible and be quiet. Right? And so what happens when you put my background in the room with her background? Well, you have a long couple years of marriage. But you know what happened? Any Messiah complex I had got completely blown up. And I learned to really hate most of Christian literature on marriage. It's gospelless And dumb. I mean, I'd read some crap. They'd be like, mow the lawn and uh, vacuum the floor and do the dishes every once in a while for her. Then she'll be respond to you. So I would vacuum the floor, do the dishes, and then be angry. So I'd be like, baby, I wash the dishes. I vacuumed the floor. It was gospelless, man. It, was God, it wasn't, hey, you love your wife like Christ loved the church. You initiate, and you don't do it to get a response. You do it to be me and to learn how you treat me. <laughs> Needless to say, I'm glad that we're celebrating our 10-year anniversary. That's why I don't, Chavi and I were talking about this on the fly. I ain't starting over ever. Like, I don't want to start over ever. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. So every time, every time it's difficult. A, listen, the Bible tells you it's going to be. Quit being surprised by that stuff. That's so confusing to me. Like, I don't know where we're getting that, like, blessing is that there'll be the removal of struggle. Because that's not biblical. I don't know where we're getting that idea. Find me the guy that got to walk in that. Just serious. You just take them, show me them. All right? God comes to Jeremiah. You go say what I tell you to say. I'll give you the power to build up nations and to destroy them. Where's he end up? Beat up in a ditch. Where's he end up after that? In captivity. That's what I'm just telling. I'm, try, I'm, I'm trying not to get back on it, but that's what the health, wealth, gospel is crap. So stupid. John the Baptist, are you the one or should we expect another? That's what he says to Jesus. Jesus quotes Isaiah to him, but leaves off the line about prisoners being set free. You know, John the Baptist was like, did he, didn't, wasn't there one more line on that? The poor are taking, the lame are saying, the prisoners will be set free. No, that, let me look on my, no, that's all he said. He said, the lame, did you hear what Jesus just said to him? He, I am the one, and you're going to die in here. Why? Okay, okay, stop, quit thinking like this is home. Remember the glass. Remember the glass. Remember what Paul says, if there's not a resurrection, we should be pitied more than all men. But there is a resurrection. 
There is the day I lift the glass. So me being beheaded because of a 15-year-old stripper who catches the eye of the king, that's a win. That's me going home. Or we can keep going. Disappointment. Moses. Has there ever been a worse calling than Moses? Here's what I want you to do for me. I'm going to give you thousands of the most complaining, grumbling morons you can imagine. I'm going to ask you to lead them. I'm going to give you clear-cut instructions on where to take them. All right? And then eventually you're going to get a land. And then you, you remember how Moses dies? God takes him up on the mountain and shows him the promised land. And Moses is like, we did it. We're here. After all these years, 40 years in the desert, we're here. And God goes, all right, uh, maybe I should have told you before we came up here. Um, I'm going to kill you on the mountain, and Joshua gets to take them in. <laughs> Do we keep going or you got it? Yeah. I mean, we could keep going here. This idea that blessing is the removal of suffering, the removal of difficulty, and a life of ease, that's foolishness. You've got to get that out of your head so that when it does come, you don't feel betrayed but loved. Because that's what happens. Some of you guys are trying to barter with God. But you don't have anything to barter with. So you're like, I'm going to do this and then you do this. Yeah, but that's mine. Right? C.S. Lewis, sixpence none the richer. You know that little quote where he said, trying to barter with God is like a little girl coming up to their grandfather and asking for $6 to buy him a present. So he takes the $6, buys him a present, brings him the present, gives it to him. He's sixpence none the richer, $6 none the richer. You don't have any, you have no position of bargaining. Well, I gave him my life. Mm -mm -mm. He'll take your life when he wants it. Well, I give him my worship. Uh, no, he showed himself to you, which creates worship. Don't get confused. Don't get confused. If he doesn't show himself to you, you can't worship him. And no one sees him and doesn't worship. God, God never forces anybody to love him. He doesn't have to. He just shows himself. And then you worship. That's what happens. That's what happens. All right. All right. So cultivating is going to be difficult. All right? It is. But it is the call of God on our life. So let me throw this out, and then we need to move on because I want to talk about um, really Jesus is the example of, of what to look at and what to... I'm going to be really honest with you right now, and then you're going to have to deal with it in the Spirit and ask the Lord. Like right now, you are cultivating something. Because it's what God designed you to be. And I'm talking spiritually. Like if you're being spiritually lazy, you're cultivating. Yeah. If you are, I mean, right now, where you are, you're building out tomorrow. You really are. Now, God's grace will cover our stumbles in that. God, God, but you are right now. Here's, here's what I'm trying to say to you. Nobody stumbles into godliness. Godliness isn't an accident. Nor does it just happen. Like if you're waiting for Pastor E to preach the sermon that makes you godly, you're going to wait forever. And he can bring it. 
Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. That word train, Greek word gymnopsia, it means to sweat. Train yourself in godliness. Paul uses words like toil, strive, endure, press on, labor, fight for this. So what are you cultivating? I, I, here's the thing that drives me nuts about young men. You ready? Just, just spiritual cowards. Like, where's the war? Where's the war? Like, why are you going to be that guy that comes to group every week and be like, well, I looked at porn again. Lee, come back the next week. How was your week? Ma, looked at porn again. <laughs> then next week, well, I didn't look at porn on my computer, but my iPhone got me this week. Like, why you, now, I'm not saying that's not a legitimate struggle, but here's what I'm saying. Where's the war against it? Like, why are you comfortable with that? Why are you okay being that guy? Like, why don't we war against that? Why don't we hate that? Why don't we do everything we can to murder that in us? Now, he's got to, I mean, there's grace, but you got to murder, you got to do everything you can to murder that. Like, where's the war? Why are we okay where we are? Like, I see so much angst in historic men and in biblical men. Like, Psalm 63, Psalm 42, David's in pain. Those aren't kitschy coffee cup verses. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. He's hurting. I hate this. Where are you? Like, that's the thing that kills me. Where's the war? Just a bunch of cowards. War, why so little war? Why so comfortable in your sin? Why so? I, just don't, I don't understand it. Like, that's why I start saying crazy things like I think everybody's lost. I'm just like, man, I don't know. I mean, this might be hard. I don't know. If you say, man, your sin don't even bother you. And I know it bothers you, but it bothers you. And I'm, oh, dang it. I did it again. <laughs> like, you, you're not afraid. Why aren't you afraid? Like, we do this family camp in the summers, and they have this petting zoo. For the children in the petting zoo, there's these little goats that black out if you scare them. Like their legs lock and then they fall over. Have you seen that? Google that or YouTube that thing later, man. You'll laugh all day long like you, ha! Bam, they black out. That's their defense mechanism, blacking out. And so at camp, every dude I know gets in there and tries to make that thing black out. But here's what, here's what I just thought as I was watching them do that. If there was an apex predator in there, if there was a lion in there, like just a giant 2,000-pound lion with a big mane and teeth, nobody's going to be like, yeah, on that thing. Nobody's going to walk up and slap him in the back, try to make him black out. Nobody's, you, how are you going to, you're going to walk in real slow, aren't you? See, if they're goats, you walk on in, you don't kick them. You, if there's an apex predator in there, you walk in slow. You let somebody else feed him first. No, go on, man, go on. Here, here's mine. Give him mine. No, that's all. That's fear. That's respect. That's, this thing can kill me if it wants to. Like, I, where's the fear? Where's the war? Where's the, I don't know what to do with the Christianity that doesn't have those. I mean, doesn't the book of Hebrews say you should be nervous if you haven't entered into the Lord's rest? 
I'm not saying we're perfect. Come on, man. I'm not even. Uh, no, I'm just saying striving, toil. Like, what do you do with a guy who's not striving, not toiling, not pushing, not n- nothing? I don't know what you do with that. I don't know what you do with it biblically. So if we're going to hash this out in regards to attitude and action, this being redeemed as cultivators, I I think we look to the person and work of Jesus Christ as the example of what it looks like to be the mature man. All right? And and so I've wrote, I mean, I think we could do this forever, um, but let me just give you a couple. Um, It's very clear in the scriptures that Jesus has this eternal mindset. Like he knows everything to him is about eternity. Everything to him is about um, forever. It's not about the moment. Like I wrote down a couple of things. He did the will and the work of the Father. Um, he didn't, he wasn't working towards his own success or his own desires. All right? Uh, and, and here's, I, I mean, you can go to the garden on this one. Not, not that I will. Jesus, fully God, fully man, is going, is there another way? Is there another way? And what's God's response? God the Father's response? No. There's not another way. You're going to the cross. All right? Now, keep in mind, right, Peter, when they come to arrest him, goes thug, doesn't he? Pulls out his sword, whacks off the guy's ear. All right? Jesus, put your sword away, grabs the guy's ear, bam, puts it back on his head, and then says, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Now listen, plus, do you not know that at any moment I could call out to my father and have at my disposal 12 legions of angels? You know what he's saying? Nobody's taking my life. I'm laying it down. No one's taking this from me. I'm laying this down. But it was already clear that he would rather go another way with it. Yeah. Eternal mindset. He was filled with the Spirit, filled with the Word. Didn't live by the world's wisdom and ways. We see that in the temptation where, if you'll, if you'll think about it, he, the devil's tempting Jesus like this. God, God wouldn't want you hungry. Eat some bread. God wouldn't. Hey, you're the son... Son of God, he wouldn't want you lowly. He would want you exalted. Hey, you want... He's, well, Jesus filled with the word, says, oh, no, 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 oh, no man won't live by bread alone. Oh, no, yeah. He's got the eternal mindset. He gave the gospel to others, not temporary pleasures or relief. Think about the woman caught in adultery. Think about Nicodemus. He lived a holy, obedient life. It was not sinful at all. We find that out in 1 Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Philippians 2, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had an eternal mindset. So let's do this. Let's not dwell in ambiguity. Where's your eyes? On the cup? On the banqueting table? On eternal things? On, or what? Graduating, getting, get, getting married, making a little bit more money. Getting, I'm not saying those things are bad. In fact, those things can be very beautiful, Christ-filled, sanctifying things. I'm just asking where your eyes are. Like, how much do you love this place? Because Paul, and I don't know, <laughs> this past summer, E and I were in Vail. And I was like, uh, hey, man, let's rent some mountain bikes and mount down. He was like, I am a black man in the mountains. I am not. Right? When, when we go, like, when we go camping, like, like my wife, camping for her is the Hilton. All right? She ain't sleeping in a tent. She ain't sleeping outside in the woods. She, that's not how. She's not doing that. All right? 
Like, Paul says that this life this is like camping, man. This is like being in a tent in the woods. This ain't home. Man, you got to go to the bathroom out in the bushes. You gotta, this is uncomfortable for us. This is not home. Can you say that? Or do you love this place, man? Are all your hopes and all your tied to the comforts of this place? Man, you got to wrestle with that. We got to die to those things. That's why, even going back to last night, the reason we can easily give up our liberties? Because how, how cheap is that compared to what we've got coming? Man, can I drink a beer? Sure. Should I? Maybe not. Is it a big deal? Not at all. Not for where we're going. Not for where we're going. Where's your mind? Is it, is it set on eternal things? It's one of the first things we see about Jesus, God in the flesh. Manhood. Eternal mindset. All right, here's the second thing you see. You see in Jesus a deep sense of love and understanding, which sometimes aren't, aren't really attributed to masculinity, but they're there. It's a ferocious love, a ferocious understanding. He sought to meet the needs of others, so he's not uncaring and self-focused. You see in Matthew 4 that he's healing and caring for people. You see that he sacrificed his self and his own desires, so he wasn't self-preserving and selfish. We saw that. I already read in Philippians 2 where he became a servant. He was gentle whenever possible. I want to clarify that because there is a time to handle things in a manner that might not be deemed gentle. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he was gentle whenever possible. Wasn't he when he said, take my yoke upon you for it's what? It's easy. It's light compared to the yoke of what you're learning. Yeah. Okay. We see love. We see understanding. He also was... Um, and the thing I've always just loved about Jesus is he is ferocious. I mean, he just is ferocious. Fearless, man. I mean, absolutely fearless, which comes from the eternal mindset. You ain't got anything to be afraid of. And that's why Paul was so frustrating to the ancient world. They're like, all right, we'll kill you. To die is gain. Okay, we'll let you live. To live is Christ. All right, we'll torture you then. All right, well, give me a hymn book while I'm down there because the present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the future glory. The eternal mindset creates ferocity. When you love the world, you're afraid because you've got to protect the things of the world. So, you, yeah, you don't want to be afraid. I'll give you just some examples. He led the disciples and others. He wasn't hard or demanding. He showed, now listen to this, he showed initiative when he should have. He wasn't sitting around waiting for somebody else to step up. The example, and I'll tell you where I pulled this, is out of Matthew 6 where the disciples came and said, everybody's hungry. Let them go get something to eat. Jesus said, nah, bring me that kid's lunch. <laughs> Father, 5,000 people fed. He also confronted when necessary. So let me throw this out. He was not in any way a compromiser or a man pleaser at all. Ferocious was Jesus. Matthew 23, woe to you, woe to you, you brood of vipers, you whitewashed tombs, you filthy. Ferocious. Fero I loved how he came back. All right? 
Um, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Why do you forsake the heart of the law? I mean, just did not play. All right? I mean, how often does he engage those guys? Why do you think like that? Why do you talk like that? Why do you, I mean, just ferocious. Jesus never just hopes it's going to work out for that guy. Which is what most of us are guilty of. So what we do is like to see our brother fall and then go, ah, I saw that coming. I knew that was going to get him. I knew that was going to get him. Did you ever say anything to him? Mm-hmm. What? Would you, huh? Yeah. I mean, that's, sure. He was decisive according to God's revealed will. He was not wishy-washy or afraid, right? Steadfast towards Jerusalem. Wouldn't let anything stop him like he wanted to do more miracles, but kept going because he had an appointment. To what? To die. Ferocious. He operated under a great deal of precision. He fulfilled his responsibilities. He was not irresponsible. He was diligent. He was not lazy or a quitter. He walked in an unreal amount of humility. Like, can I, let me throw this out to you. This, is, this always baffled me. It didn't baffle me. It's just hard to really get my head around it. Um, do, do you know the book of Colossians says that the universe is held together by the word of his mouth? So catch this. When that man worked up spit into his mouth and spit it out onto Jesus' face, the muscles and the nervous system and the glands required for any of that to take place were actually held together and sustained by Jesus who was being spit upon. The hand that slapped his face, the hand that grabbed his beard and yanked it out, the muscles necessary, the nervous system necessary, the brain function necessary, every cell required, every, he's letting it be. There's a humility there that I can't even really get around. I mean, they're nailing him to his wood with his metal, with the gift of life he gave. Like they're taking life and only having life because he lets them have it. I mean, this is a profound act of humility to let creation kill the creator. Profound act of humility. I mean, if you, th- if you think back to Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says that the universe just watches us drink from wells that don't satisfy and scream in horror, why do you think it went dark? Well, you think the earth rumbled. Why do you? I mean, because they were going, oh, uh-uh. He's about to blow this thing up. About to kill us all. Yeah? All right. Deep sense of humility. All right. Now, let's do this, because I, I want us to just, as best we can, not dwell in ambiguity. So let, let's go to 1 Timothy 3. I think more insight into God's plan and God's view of masculinity can be seen in 
who God says should run the church. So what he's doing is saying this. I'm going to show you what a mature Christian man looks like by requiring mature Christian men to lead the church. I'm not going to let immature men lead the church. Now, that happens in dysfunctional places. Um, But he says, I want to line out for you what the mature man looks like. So what we have, honestly, in 1 Timothy and in Titus is a list of what it looks like to be the mature man. Now, that's a gift. Because sometimes God is a little ambiguity. I mean, there really is some ambiguity there where you're going, okay, but how? Okay, what exactly does that look like in my context? Okay, what? But he doesn't even do that with manhood. He tells you, here's the bar. I'm going to break down the bar in detail so you can lay it on top of your life and go, I need to grow there, I need to grow there, I need to grow there. All right, so let's look at where you are. You are. Let's look at this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. So let's roll through it. Above reproach, blameless, not able to be accused, having a good reputation. Above reproach, you cannot bring an accusation against me that people will be Here's what I want at the village. The elders should be so righteous that if someone was causing trouble and started to run their mouth and be like, well, I'll tell you about those people. That, that guy did that and those elders did this. That. The, the general reaction from everybody should be, these guys are all against you? Like, like you're telling me Brian Miller and Matt Chandler and Josh Patterson and the list of guys that they would view as godly, righteous, humble, gentle, ferocious men of God. So that even the accusation that the church is walking in wrongdoing would seem absurd to the man in the pew. Those guys, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. They're in a shady bone in those guys' body, above reproach. The husband of one wife. Let me, I wish I had more time here. Let me just say it like this. This is a pattern of singular affection for your woman. A pattern of singular affection. Which means it's not, you know, you took her out on your anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, no. A pattern of singular affection. Sure. Sober-minded. They're temperate, alert, clear-headed, watchful. They're self-controlled. Listen, in control of thinking, emotions, passions. They are prudent, thoughtful, decent. Respectable. Orderly in time, responsibilities, and behaviors. 
their life isn't chaotic. I'll say it this way. They're living life. It didn't live in them. You ever, I mean, you've been around that guy? His life lives them. It's, it's just immaturity. All right? They're hospitable, welcoming to others. They love strangers. They serve others. Gentle simply means considerate, gracious, patient, and kind in dealing with others. He must manage his own household well. He governs, presides over, has authority over, is faithful to lead spiritually, cares for, protects, has children who are not riotous or insubordinate, oversees and or fulfills the affairs of the home. He's a lover of good. He loves virtue. Good men. He's upright. He's just. He upholds righteousness. He's holy. He's pure and devout. He's disciplined, persevering, steadfast, restrained. He holds firm to the word. He learns and upholds sound doctrine. I I think one of the things I see in the church all over the place is, unfortunately, sometimes it comes down, it's like a personality contest. It's like if you're a good dude and you got a good personality and you're warm, you're the guy. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Heaven's going to just be filled with some goofy fools, man. Some goofy, socially awkward fools. I mean, it just is. Look at who Jesus continually selects. Peter, come on. I mean, can you name a spot where he gets it right, where it doesn't go wrong right after that? I mean, Peter struggled, even after he's filled with the Holy Spirit, right? Paul has to rebuke him like six months after he's converted. Like even Peter got confused. Started just eating with the wealthy Jews. Yeah. All right. All right. In contrast, a godly man must not be a drunkard, addicted to strong drink, violent, violent, quickly angered, explosively angry. He can't be quarrelsome, contentious, argumentative. Um, uh, I'm reformed in theology. Um, I usually can't stand the reformed community. Cannibalistic cannibalistic, love to... I mean, I usually just can't stand Reformed kids. And if you're in your early 20s and you're Reformed, I I can't handle it. I just can't handle it. I mean, how in the world that beautiful doctrine can make you such an arrogant people beater? I mean, I just can't get my head around it. I just can't get my head around it. If there's ever a doctrine that should make us lowly, It's that one. Anyway, that's free. I didn't have that in my notes. Can't be a lover of money. All right? Can't be arrogant, self-willed. Can't be quick-tempered. All right. Now, this, the lack of this type of manhood, all right? And you should be able to grade yourself out. You should be able to lay this on your life and go, where am I? A lack of this type of manhood really has killed us in the church, man. Like, I... I just threw some stats in here. Typical U.S. congregation draws an adult crowd that's 61% female, 39% male. It's a gender gap that shows up in all age categories. In fact, the younger you get, the more we're dominated by females. This Sunday, almost 25% of married, church-going women will worship without their husbands. On any given Sunday, there are 13 million more adult women than men in American churches. Listen to this one. Midweek activities draw 70 to 80% female participants. 
Over 70% of boys who are being raised in the church will abandon it during their teens and 20s. Most of these will not return. More than 90% of American men believe in God. Five out of six call themselves Christian, but only two out of six attend church on any given Sunday. The average man accepts the reality of Jesus Christ, but fails to see any value in going to church. A study from the Hartford Seminary found that the presence of involved men was statistically correlated with church growth, health, harmony, and mission. Meanwhile, a lack of male participation is strongly associated with congregational decline. All right. Let me do this and starting to wrap us up because I want to ask you for some specific things in regard to epiphany. Go to Acts 20. I want to show you this in motion. Acts 20 is one of my favorite little pictures of what it looks like to be a man of God. It's our boy Paul. Acts 20, we're going to pick it up in 18. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Listen to 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, I just want to be careful here. I, I want to point out to you that as contextualized as the gospel is in Paul's ministry, he's always preaching repentance, always preaching repentance, always preaching the need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. That's the thing I think that happens in this missional movement. A lot of times we're in the world but no longer calling them to repentance because they don't like that. Huh. Well, then you ain't on mission. 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Constrained by the Spirit and now and not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But he keeps going. It's my favorite part of the story of Paul, that on all these ports, like you remember the elders at Ephesus? They go, man, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be imprisoned and probably killed. And Paul goes, the Holy Spirit told me that too. I'll see you guys later. And keeps going to Jerusalem. I mean, fearless, bro. Ferocious. Look at what he says. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Where's his eyes? Eternity. His eyes are on that cup. Yeah. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now listen to 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So if 
the wolves are coming, who do we throw out there to fight? Our wives? Our little daughters? Our sons? I mean, the very definition of manhood is tweaked if the wolves come and you throw your girl in front of you. Like there ain't a culture in the universe where that's not seen and looked at with disdain. What happened to your wife? She got killed. Wolf got her. Where were you? Behind her? Wolf got into her. I got that. There's a wolf there. I ain't getting in there. I mean, how do you look at that guy? Disdain. Nobody goes, man, I'd have done that same thing. Nobody does that. Disdain. Coward. Weak. That's what's happened in the church, man. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all of those who are sanctified. Yeah. All right. Let me show you a couple more things here. That's, that's a beautiful example of manhood in the local church. All right. Now, let me show you a couple more little things. Uh, 2 Timothy 2. Second Timothy 2. Let's be real quick and easy. Second Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen, this is Paul about to die, turning over to Timothy. Look at what he says. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to, what's that say? Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what's the plan? What's the plan of the church moving forward as it spreads? Find faithful men, entrust them with the gospel, train them, release them. All right, not, all right, convert them, retain them. Well, that's why you lose your warriors if you're training, I mean, if you're converting and retaining. There's a fight. You train them and you set them free in the domains of society to live the gospel boldly. These things that you have learned from me entrust to faithful men. Faithful men. The breakdown is, man, the breakdown is godly men. I mean, they've almost gone the way of the dodo bird, man. It, it's, it's neat Christian boys. Most people don't have taste for the fight anymore. Go 1 Timothy 2. One more. And then I want to tell you exactly what I'm asking of you. 1 Timothy 2. We'll pick it up in verse 8. I desire that in every place the... Give me that word. Men should pray. Well, why is it, like, when did the girls get the prayer role? Like, we do big prayer meetings, you know who shows up? The ladies. Like, when did we become the intellects and they become the power base? Like, we read, they pray. How about we pray as we read and then pray? 
I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in a respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Man, I get, I mean, I just got an email this past week from a woman in our church that just said, She's saying, hey, I think one of the reasons the church is shrinking is because culture says women are this and the church is acting this way. I just had to shoot her a quick email and goes, culture doesn't dictate to us. Culture doesn't, we redeem culture. Culture doesn't dictate to us. Culture doesn't tell us what the family looks like. Culture doesn't tell us how the church should be run. That's not contextualization. That's selling out. That's not, anyway, I don't have time. Let's keep going. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, don't take that too far like some fools did because when God came to the garden, who did he ask for? What'd you do, Adam? That's what he had. He didn't come and go, Eve, Eve. Didn't even, he didn't even talk to her. Adam, where are you? Fool was in a bush. I mean, if you hide from the Lord, a bush, I mean, that's like my little boy, man, playing hide and seek. He just lays on the floor. He thinks because can't, he can't see me, I can't see him. I'm like, bro, you, you're just laying on the floor, man. You're not even hiding. Hid from the Lord. We're over here. We're naked. Who told you you were naked? Yeah, shame. Got him. For Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, let me, let me ask you a question here. According to this text, who does God give the primary care and leadership of the church to? Men. Now, catch this here. I don't think a woman belongs in the kitchen, in the bedroom, keep her mouth. In fact, I know very opposite of that. But primary care, primary leadership, primary, who's it go to? Men. All right, so what am I asking of you? I'm going to ask three things of you, all right? I ask the same thing of our, of our men back home. Be spiritual fathers. Men don't follow programs. They follow men. They don't. You know, I know it. Because here's what I've learned about every program we've ever done. Like, you know, we show the, you know, men are, we're easily riled up for causes. So show the Braveheart clip and then have a sign-up sheet at the back of the room. (laughs) With a blue pen. Let's go. Let's go. And the first couple of weeks, it'll be packed. And then what happens? Well, cultivating holiness is difficult. So we start to, you know, I took Greek in college. And um, we started out with 45 guys, ended with three. And that's programs in the church for men. Start strong and small. Yeah. They don't follow programs. They follow men. So be spiritual fathers. Let me tell you, especially if you're a little bit older in here, you've eventually got to do something with that 20 years of Bible study you got. Be spiritual fathers. Well, I'm only only 22, I'm only 23. All right. I don't know. Age doesn't have anything to do with eldering. That's why Paul told Timothy to appoint them. 
You don't appoint an age. You look for the man. So father, be a father. Be a spiritual father. Pour into, challenge. Go get yourself some 1 Timothy 4. Set the example in life, in the reading and loving of the word, in training yourself for godliness, in be spiritual fathers. Yeah. Steve Harden, David McQueen, Jerry Hendricks, they were all men I just hung out with. I don't know that we ever sat down and had a Bible study. In fact, looking back, most of those men, I wouldn't even call predominantly word men. They were growing in it. But here's what, they loved me, they encouraged me, and they were not afraid to call me out. They just weren't, man. Like, I remember this time, I didn't even lie. I just didn't tell the whole truth. And, and Steve Harden pulled me aside and said, godly men, a godly man, would tell the whole truth and just accept the consequences. I mean, I left that room so angry. Hello, punk. You don't even know what I... <laughs> and then I told you I'm a haunted man. I mean, I just laid in bed that night and went, dang, I'm, I want to be a godly man. And I was afraid of the consequences, which is why I said the half-truth. I justified it by going, I didn't lie. All right, no more. What happened? Somebody was afraid to call wasn't afraid to call me out, which leads me to the second thing. Be spiritual fathers, but you find your band of brothers. Like, let me throw this out. Your relationship with Christ is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but it was never meant to be private. Our faith does not work itself out in privacy. Can I... Let me throw this out to you. Some of you are hanging out with morons. which is why you are perpetually a moron. Like, get with someone who pushes you, challenges you, makes you angry. Get with that guy. Get with the guy you're like, man, every time I get around that guy, man, I just feel convicted. Try to avoid him. Oh, here he comes. I gotta get, are you going to ask me if I've been in the Word? i got to get away from him. i got to get away from him. In fact, let me read something real quick. To, for, say, Timmy 3, yeah. Hey, man, hey. No, yeah, no, I was just reading 1 Timothy 3. <laughs> Get with guys who push you, who push you, who convict you. And I don't, can I throw this out? Maybe even find those guys whose strength is your weakness. Like, so here I am, I'm, I'm head, man. I'm heavy head. I want to read, I want to study, I want to break it. I want to be around guys who are fearlessly missional and just completely unashamed. I want to get with the guy who's going to share the gospel with the girl at Subway. All right? Because that's, that's not my inclination. All right? So what happens when I walk with Jose is I get to teach him the scriptures and his courage gets to rub off on me. So I'd say... Find your band of brothers. And it doesn't need to be just a bunch of dudes like you. Like you don't need to have just a little John Piper club. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I, lo I love John. I love Jay Pip. I love him. All right? I got a cell phone number. I'll call him right now. All right? I love him. But in the end, I don't need to be around just a bunch of guys who want to talk Calvinism all the time. How's that growing me? Well, we're already there. 
I'm there. I believe I'm five. I'm six point. Let's go. I'm in. I don't even just sit around and keep talking about that all day long. Let's go get to work. So I want to be around people who champ. I want to be around people who worship big. Like you start singing about the glory of God, and they're just moved, man. They just can't hardly hold themselves together. Because I'm going, mm, that's correct. That's correct. Mm, I think the ecclesiology is a little off on that one. That's what I'm doing. I want to be people who just see Jesus. I mean, they're just, he's here, who cares? Because I'll miss him, man. I'll miss him for my critique of everything, making sure everybody's in truth. So I need to get around people who I can rub off on biblically and they can rub off emotively on me. That's what I need to do. That's what I need to do. All right. All right. Find your band of brothers. Now, one more. You ready? Own this place. Fight for her. Serve her. Care for her. War for this place. Serve your pastor. Walk with him. Encourage him. Fight with him. Support him. Own this place. I've got this real weird view of ecclesiology these days, man. It's like um, most of us treat church like it's like an ecclesiological buffet. Like we get there and we take a little bit of that, a little bit of that. Green beans aren't all that good this day and we don't really care for that. And we just fill up our plate and go, which is why, honestly, which is why sanctification is moving so slow for some of you. Own this place. War for her. Pray for her. Beg God to move in powerful ways at Epiphany. Like, do you know, I don't even know if you know this. Do you know the favor that God's given you and your pastor? Like, do you, like, do you get that in Dallas, Texas, Village Church, church of 6,000 predominantly upper middle class white folk, that people pray for you? That people want to give money to this place? They've never even been. They've never seen a video. They have no idea what's even here. What happened? For whatever reason, God stirred up their hearts. So you got people like in Dallas begging God to empower you, embolden you, see people saved in the neighborhood. But I also know it's taking place in Seattle. I also know it's taking... I mean, God's given you this weird spiritual favor among the Christian community at large. Look what he's doing with your pastor. I mean, E-May's having to govern. Uh, I got to say no to that. 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 I got a church to lead. I got a family to lead. I got to. Why, why all the opportunities? It's God's favor on me. Like God's showing you favor. Walk in that. Protect that. Don't let anybody boast in anything but him. Guard that. Don't try to walk with a swagger. Don't, no, 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 no. He's doing, we don't know. It's my favorite part of the village. We've asked continually for God to do things in such a way that we couldn't teach anyone else how to do it. So we went multi-site. You know how that happened? We prayed and fasted. Somebody gave us a building. You can't write a book about that. 
Chapter 1, pray some. <laughs> Chapter 2, fast while you're praying. Chapter 3, someone should give you a building. <laughs> I mean, we can't. How do, you, how do you do it? I don't You know, we pray a lot and ask God to be mighty. That's what we do. So own this place. All right, let me wrap it up. It's a difficult journey. You know, sometimes I come home tired and I don't feel like loving my wife like Christ loved the church. So in that moment, I look to the cup. I ask Christ for strength. And I love without expecting to receive anything. Sometimes when I come home, like, it's one thing to play with your kids. It's another thing to go after your kid's heart. That's difficult. And it takes some thinking. Like, my, my daughter will answer every question with yes or no unless I think through, how do I ask a question to really go after her heart? How do I spend time with her to go after? You know, that's difficult, man. It's difficult to go after your children's heart. You have to plan it. Like, if I'm taking her to school, I have to sit down and go, how am I going to redeem this time and go after her heart? When we go out on a little date, because I'm dating my daughter well, so when those little punk kids show up later on, She'll think they're weak. She'll be like, no flowers? Get out of my face. Uh Uh-uh. Go get me some flowers and come back. I'll be like, go get us some flowers. Right? And so on our little dates, I got to think about, I'm not just doing this so she can date well. I'm doing this because I want her to love Christ. So how do I go after her heart here? How do I go after my boy's heart? That's work, man. It's not natural. Throwing the ball is natural. Rough house and wrestling, natural for me. Going after his heart with the gospel, I got to think about that. I got to plan that. I got to, man, I got a lot going on, man. That's not, sometimes I just want to come home, take a nap. 